millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast. The world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. This week we have a real treat for you, particularly those of you interested in underwater heritage. The remains of human creation that lies on the seabed and makes a new life amongst the fish and the weed and the sea sponges. Now, there are few places finer on earth to explore this type of maritime history and archaeology than the island of Malta. I've really enjoyed putting this episode together because on several occasions as a child I visited Malta with my mum, dad and sister and now I look back on it I wonder if that was a key moment in my life when my love for history and the sea first came together. For the sea, well I'm not sure there's anything quite like it in Malta. Jumping in off warm rocks into deep clear water and the history of the island is completely astonishing. Malta lies in the Mediterranean between Sicily and the North African coast, which has made it a a stepping stone for empires as they strode in giant leaps across the Mediterranean. It was important for the Romans, the Moors, the Knights of St John, the French and then the British, and that's just its recent history. Evidence of prehistory in Malta goes back at least 6,000 years For an eight-year-old boy such as I was, it was the eye-catching castle of Valletta, which I think absorbed my attention, and the story of the great siege of Malta in 1565, when the entire might of the Ottoman Empire fell on this tiny island, then held by the Knights Hospitaller, whose headquarters had moved from Jerusalem after the First Crusade to Rhodes, and thence to Malta. The siege on Malta was the climax of a ferocious struggle for control of the Mediterranean between the military forces of Christianity and Islam and the tiny force of knights there and its foot soldiers managed to hold off the masses of the Ottoman army. As maritime-based sieges go, it was one of the most extraordinary in history and do you know what? I think we should dedicate at least some future episodes to Malta's siege and to similar maritime sieges. Anyway, what's interesting about Malta is that unless you know where to look, your eye is caught by the great battlements of the fortresses and the spires of the churches, the curious windows and balconies offering 
differing styles of architecture that was left behind as different civilizations settled and then moved on. There's so much to see for the land-based explorer. But what you're missing out on is astonishing, and it's all underwater. The collections of underwater heritage around Malta quite simply has to be one of the richest collections in the world, and the quality of preservation is also astounding, as well as the number of sites. And yet they are all inaccessible to so many of us. Not only do you need to be able to dive to see these, but you need to be able to dive very, very deep. And that's only possible for a tiny fraction of the world's population. You have the requisite skill, experience, knowledge, equipment, support, and let's not forget courage. They really are quite dangerously deep, some of these sites. One man has decided that this is not acceptable. He is called Timmy Gambin, and his vision for making this deep underwater heritage accessible has now been realised in a virtual underwater museum. You can find it at underwatermalta.org. That's underwatermalta.org. And it's called the Virtual Museum Underwater Malta. This online platform brings underwater cultural heritage to the surface, into the homes of, of the general public. Using 3D virtual reality and other media, the aim of the website is to provide access to and share Malta's unique underwater cultural heritage with all members of the public. Timmy Gambin is an associate professor in maritime archaeology at the Department of Classics and Archaeology at the University of Malta. He graduated in history from this university and went on to attain his master's in maritime archaeology and history from the University of Bristol, uh, which incidentally is where I got my master's in maritime archaeology from. He also has a doctorate in maritime archaeology. Professor Gambin has been involved in numerous collaborative research projects around the world and has also co-directed numerous offshore underwater surveys in various parts of of the Mediterranean. I think Timmy is an inspirational man. I hope you enjoy listening to his energy and fizzing ideas as much as I did. So here is Timmy and his fabulous underwater museum. Timmy, thanks so much for speaking to me today. Sam, it's uh, my pleasure. Now, Timmy, I absolutely love Malta. I've got very fond memories of going there as a kid on my holidays. Um, I was going to say, can you tell me about Malta's maritime history? But that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? There's so much of it. Let me put it a different way. Have you got a favourite bit of Malta's maritime history? Well, it's, I think it's as much as a challenge as the first, uh, the first question. It's a bit like asking me, you know, who my favourite child is. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big fan of all periods of, of, of our maritime history. I mean, if we just take... The British side, you know, to think that uh, Nelson sailed into our harbours, the British had their Mediterranean fleet based here. So there's there's a real connection which is still very much alive to this day between the Royal Navy and Britain on one side and Malta and the Maltese on the other. Sure. 
Um, I mean, if you just sort of think about the breadth of it, just for our listeners out there who may not know it, but there's uh, Phoenician history. Um, you've got a uh, history of Carthage, the Romans, uh, the Byzantines, the Arab rule from the mid-19th century. There was the Norman conquest, rather like Britain. You guys had a Norman conquest. The Knight Hospitaller for two and a half centuries, the French occupation, um, you know, with Napoleon in 1798. And then, of course, the World Wars. I mean, I I suppose out of all of that, my favourite thing must be the Great Siege of Malta, uh, 1565, when you've got the Ottomans trying to conquer the island of Malta. I vividly remember walking around the the battlements of Valletta and, and imagining it, I was quite into sieges and castles when I was a kid, and um, I ended up, you know, being a professional historian looking at it. So, yeah, that's uh, I think the Great Siege is one of my favourite. Absolutely, and one of the uh, driving forces behind our work, um, looking at the maritime archaeology of uh, of Malta and Gozo, is we've, we're surrounded with this condensed history you know wherever you look you mentioned Valletta but go to any village in the countryside and it's got a massive church um, you know filled with paintings from the renaissance and so on and this is all reflective of the connectivity of the island so I always had a a burning question as, as to whether this history is reflected on the seabed whether we can we can have the same traces or traces of the same history on the seabed because being an island just like uh, just like britain people had to come and go till the advent of air travel by sea yeah uh, and there's so much of it there. We were talking about what you can see on land, the great churches and the castle at Valletta, whatever it might be. But the whole point about what you guys are doing with the virtual museum is that um, there's so much also on the seabed. And it's about getting about providing access to people who, who may not be able to dive. Absolutely. Um, so we have we did find out that our history that is is very much present on the seabed as much as it is on uh, on land and heritage malta which is the national agency for 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 the management and conservation of uh, of heritage sites on on the island um provides access to your traditional sites like the Roman the Roman villa the uh, the temples the, the world famous late neolithic temples so my concept was why not provide access to our underwater heritage you can go and visit a fortress why not visit a warship so heritage malta set up the underwater cultural heritage unit which provides access so a diver local or or, or visiting from overseas can book uh, via a registered uh, dive school and they can actually pay, buy a ticket and visit the site itself. But most of our sites are beyond the 50 meter contour line. So that is really beyond traditional scuba depth. So the sites, although they are open, and that's that's sort of you know something we're very proud of. However, they're only open to a small percentage of uh, the world's population. So the idea behind the, the museum was now: what's the next step? How can we take these sites to the general public that cannot dive beyond fifty meters, which, as as we both know, is the vast majority of the world's population. Yeah. And so you've created it. We'll go on and talk about some of the examples in a moment. But um, my first question, I suppose, is is how did you 
how did you find the sites? Actually, there are two questions. One is how did you find them? But were, were all of the sites that feature in your museum known to you when you began the project? Or do you, did, did you discover some in the process? Um, that's a very good question. Some were known, um, like the bowfighter, HMS Maori. Uh, some were known and had been dived already. Others, um, such as the Phoenician shipwreck, the Sky Raider, these were discovered as part of a broader project for, for over two decades now. Um, myself and at the University of Malta have been conducting a, a sonar survey of the uh, coast of Malta and Gozo. And quite literally, Sam, you know, we, we, we take our, so our side scan sonar out and we map the seabed. So we're producing an image, an archaeological map of the seabed, and if it's there, if it's present on the seabed, we'll find it. So most of the sites were discovered by us. Um, mm. And that, that to me, makes it, more, makes it more special because we're bringing sites that are, are, are hitherto unknown to, to the general public. So what's the process like? So say you find a, a site, something appears on the side scan sonar, and you go, well, this is interesting. What's the next stage of kind of investigating whether of how how interesting it actually is and if it's going to feature into in your virtual museum? <laughs> well, there are a number of ways that we classify that we classify sites. The site scan will give us an idea of uh, how well preserved it is. So, um, you know, when you end up with a with a sonar image of a plane looking as though it's just landed on the seabed, then straight away that's something that uh, that catches your that catches your eye and if, if it's within uh, the diveable depths of our team we we dive down to 130 meters so anything down to 130 meters we can investigate ourselves um, anything beyond that we use a remote operated vehicle which which is um, a, a, a robot on with a camera uh, driven from driven from the surface so we decide a according to budget, B according to, uh, to to sort of the level of interest, how much we can identify. Now there are some which we deem not as exciting as others based on the sonar image, and lo and behold, you know we're we're sometimes pleasantly pleasantly surprised. So um, once we've decided which sites we're going to uh, investigate. The first dive is generally dedicated to identification. So we dive, we, may, we uh, identify and confirm the type of plane it is, for example, or, or, or what, ship, what ship it is. There, be, there, there is also background research because we know what ships were lost in World War I and World War II. So uh, most of them have been found, but there are still a handful out there that haven't been found. We have an approximate idea of where these are. So this background research is going on all the time. We confirm whether it's one of these. Then on the basis of our first recon, we go to the next phase. And the next phase is starting to record the site in detail. One, to have a scientific yardstick. We want to know what the state of that site was in 2021, for example. And then any further studies can be measured against that, uh, that baseline. And two, the same data that we capture goes into the formation of a site on the, uh, on the museum. 
once you've decided to record, how do you actually go about it? Because um, for those of you who are listening, do please check out um, our Facebook site and the YouTube channel. We've got some truly wonderful 3D imagery of the, some of the sites that Timmy is talking about. How do you actually go about creating those, those wonderful images? We have a, uh, we've developed a special technique to uh, record sites in, in 3D. We use high-resolution uh, photography, so two quite powerful cameras. The secret is the lighting. At those depths, there's hardly any lighting at all. Natural light doesn't penetrate down to 70, 80, 90 meters. So we've got uh, very powerful bespoke lights. Um, and we've, our, our 3D experts swim and take a photograph every second so that there's enough overlap. And then once... Just to give you an idea, in in a half-hour dive, these uh, three, we, we call them the 3D fairies because they're always flying around the site uh, taking this, uh, <laughs> this, nice. image, this imagery. Um, in, in, uh, in, ha in a half-hour dive, they can shoot up to 4,000 photographs each. Um, then once, once we surface, we uh, take those photographs, we process them through at least two specialized software suites, um, and generally, after the first dive, we've got an outline model. On the basis of that outline model, we can recognize where we need to go back to in order to fill in and bring the model up to, sta up to a standard that for us is acceptable to put onto the museum. I mean, just to give a sense of how many people are actually involved in this. So say you've got some people taking photographs of something the size of a, of a World War II bomber. Um, on the seabed. How big is the team enabling you to do that? Because I mean, you've got support boats. How many people are on the boat? How many people are in the water? Um, it's it's a nice bit of recognition for the people who are sort of behind the scenes. They're not behind the scenes for, for us because we, we see them as guardian angels. Um, we've got the main dive boat, which has a skipper and two support divers. So once we come up from, let's say, a 100-meter dive, um, just to give, to give your, your listeners a bit of background, to, to, to descend to 100 meters takes us six minutes. We've got approximately 14 minutes on the side. Then it takes us anything between two and two and a half hours to ascend. Um, we're full of extra cylinders for safety. We've got all the cameras, the scooters. So our two support divers dive down to about 24 meters and take all the gear that we don't need. So those are the three support, uh, so the, the three support uh, members of, uh, of, of the dive boat team. Will be probably, for a bomber, will be two teams of three. So there are six deep divers. And then there is the fast boat, which has uh, a crew a crew of one. And the, the, the fast boat is there just in case the team gets separated. So there's a whole safety protocol, um, which is, you know, we go through this and the briefing the evening before, and then we repeat the briefing on the boat as, as we're going up. So for a bomber, it's a, approximately 10 persons, and that's on the field. Obviously, then there are a whole host of other people working in the background with regard to graphics, processing, etc. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, it's so important. I mean, for, for all of you out there now, hopefully, who have just found some of these images, it's so easy in this day of um, of of uh, absorbing imagery so quickly to kind of forget about how they're actually created. But let me tell you, the images from the seabed off Malta, it takes some serious doing. Um, and it's one of the reasons I'm so, um, so impressed with what you guys have managed to achieve. Let's now have a quick chat about some of the sites. Um, the Bristol Blenheim. So this is a, you've got the wreck of a, of a, a British, it's a light bomber. Um, and uh, what in by the end of 1940, you've got these these aircraft. Um, they're performing anti-shipping roles. They're bombing reconnaissance missions to support Allied ground troops in North Africa. They're they're all over the place, aren't they? And and, and you found one of them. <laughs> um, yes, actually, the, the 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 Blenheim bomber is one of the uh, popular dive sites for those on 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 scuba gear. So it's uh, it's been known. But it's also a typical example, besides being an integral part of our history, or you know, of of Malta's history in World War II, uh, which we'll come back to. Um, it's it's also indicative of what a short time, Sam, we have with these wrecks. In particular, aircraft under war and seawater do not go well together. Aircraft were made from a lot of experimental alloys. Um, and once they once they come into contact with seawater, they um, sort of start eroding. Then they reach a, a sweet spot where they kind of stabilize. But we're beginning to notice, especially in shallower waters where you have a combination of biological factors, things like light as well, the warmth, um, maybe even climate change is, is starting to impact uh, these sites. But the Blenheim bomb is a clear example of how quickly a site can deteriorate. When we started diving this this site a few years ago, it was particle it was practically intact. Today, it's just a just a skeleton. 
Yeah. So and, and another thing to remember when you're looking at these images is that they're not going to be like that forever. The whole point of taking these wonderful 3D images is that there's a record of them for when they are no longer there. They can no longer be seen, dived on or appreciated at all. So you're creating, you know, its own little moment in history or kind of you're freeze framing it as it is on the seabed at the moment. Um, and then how about another one? You've got the the Junkers, the Ju-88, a German version, a German, a German uh, uh, plane. Tell me about that one. Well, the the war, the Second World War in Malta was mainly fought in the air. But and 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 I'm not saying this because it's a Mariner's Mirror podcast. But the main reason that the Germans uh, wanted to anali- uh, annihilate the island and 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 uh, as a base for the British was that it was um, a thorn in 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 Rommel's side. From Malta, um, the, 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 the fighting tent, okay, the 10th submarine flotilla would sail out and literally decimate supply convoys to North Africa. So the only way that the uh, Axis forces could, uh, could respond, well, actually, there were two ways. One was to try and bomb the hell out of the island, especially the, the harbour area. You mentioned Valletta before, you know, the population was forced to leave or go underground in, in rock-cut shelters. The main reason they were bombing Valletta was it was the base for, for, for the British ships, but it, there were also the dockyards. So, so the dockyards were utilised to actually f- fix uh, and repair ships such as the illustrious that were damaged at sea. The second... Um, the uh, second aspect that uh, they wanted to uh, to get at is um, they wanted to stop the uh, tent flotilla. They wanted to stop the, um, the the submarine. So what they did is the the second way that they they tried stopping the British using Malta as an effective attack base was to lay massive minefields. One of the one of the sites we have on the museum is the Schnellboot. Yes, uh, the, 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 the German e-boat. This was actually part of a small flotilla. They were laying mines outside the harbour uh, and it struck one of its own mines and, uh, yeah. and sunk. So when you, when you see the proximity of the Schnellboot to the harbour, the Germans were getting within under a mile of the coast. That's the risks that's reflective of the risks they were willing to take in order to uh, to 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 sort of disable uh, Malta as a as a fighting force. Um, some of the sites that are coming up on the on the museum, for example, HMS Olympus, a famous submarine we discovered some years ago, um, that was sunk by a mine laid by the Germans and the Italians. So their minefields were indeed effective sam yeah it's fascinating isn't it and one of the things we'd started off there talking about the the german bomber um in in comparison with the bristol blenheim this this um ju88 is in magnificent condition isn't it just sort of sitting yes there. i i i i uh, changed tack a bit so the ju88 was the main bomber used by the Germans in, 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 in the war, and it was one of the main bombers used, uh, that used to fly out of Sicily to, to attack Malta, to carry out these attacks on the dockyard, the airfields, and so on. Um, there are a number of Ju-88s uh, that, were, that were shot down into the sea. 
we have two already on the museum. One of them, the one that you're referring to, is in absolute pristine condition. The cockpit is still intact. The forward-looking gun is still intact. Um, there's a reason why the Ju-88 uh, at the south of the island is in such perfect condition. This is deeper than the Blenheim. And uh, light is cut out, so the less light there is, the more, uh, the less growth there is, so the less biological impact. Um, the, the, the sea is colder, the temperature is more stable. Therefore, um, the, uh, the conditions are conducive to, to better preservation. And I must say, the pilot must have made a fantastic ditching into, into the sea because you cannot have such a well-preserved plane if this crashed at terminal velocity, for example. Yeah, it um, it seems to have just settled down. Isn't isn't that the one that's missing the um the rescue the rescue dinghy on the back? Is that right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, so for for your listeners, if they if they go on the site, there's there's a there's a, a rectangular uh, space um, towards the towards the tail, and that's where the rescue dinghy used to be. So this is indicative that the crew survived, um, that they got into the dinghy. And we're still trying to research which actual plane uh, this one is. As I said, that so many JU-88s got shot down. But there was the RAF ran a fantastic air sea rescue. Um, I'm, I must say, there's 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 an excellent book called Call Out, which is a transcription, a day-to-day -day diary of these three motor launches that literally. Sam risked life and limb to go out and rescue pilots, not only British, American, Canadian, but also German and Italians. Um, and they, they, they did a fantastic job of going out and, uh, and rescuing pilots in the central Mediterranean. So we're trying to match um, the, the, the JU-88 that we discovered in, in 108 meters or so with one of the rescues by, by, by the RAF uh, fast launch. Wonderful. It's a, it's, a, it's a great story. And each one's a little kind of a microcosm of history which you can unravel. What about this X-Lighter? You've got an X-Lighter. What's that? Well, the X-Lighter is, again, a very popular site, dive site, especially when the northwest blows because she's, she's in situ. The X-Lighter is a uh, like a bunkering barge, and um, the one that, that is sunk off Manuel Island in Malta is reputed to uh, have taken part in the Gallipoli campaign. Okay, so this is something that was built for the First World War, but then repurposed for the Second. Absolutely. So, so, so... Already in World War Two, she comes with a baggage of history. She's already sort of has historic importance because she's used in the in the Gallipoli campaign. Now, quite clearly, you know, when when you're in desperate need of equipment, nobody's going to say, "Oh no, we'll preserve this ex lighter because she took part in Gallipoli and she was a uh, she was used as a bunkering barge at the submarine base off Manuel Island." In the beginning, the German planes didn't know where the submarines were based because every time there was an air raid, the submarines would, uh, would, would settle on the seabed. If I take a step back, the British had uh, started excavating submarine pens in the 1930s, but they were deemed too expensive 
and the British Parliament sort of cut the budget and 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 stopped them. So anyway, the submarines used to sink, uh, used to go go down to the bottom and evade detection. Eventually, the German planes found out what was happening, and so they would come in, dive, and bomb uh, the, the the base of the of the uh, submarine flotilla. What, there were two casualties in, the, in uh, two submarines sunk in the harbor, one of which was brought up and cut up and and uh, scuttled outside. Another one was brought up uh, whole and then scuttled outside Malta um, to train ASDIC um, operators. The X lighter was the victim of one bombing raid. Uh, if you uh, if you if you uh, visit the virtual museum underwater Malta, you get a very good idea of the shape and type of barge it is. Incidentally, even if you dive it, it's only in 15, 20 meters of water, but you never see it in its entirety because the, the, the water is pretty murky in the harbor. So this is also an opportunity for people who have dived it or who are going to dive it to um, visualize it in its entirety. But once you open up the uh, the 3D model on the side, there is a very, very clear um, marking of a bomb that penetrated its side. And that bomb yeah. went right through right through that barge and sunk it on the spot. Yeah, I, I was, uh, my, my mouth was wide open when I actually looked at that. You know, I've seen quite a few images of wrecks, but it's very, very powerful, just to give you an impression of the, um, the sheer ferocity uh, of what, what you know the explosion that, that sank that sank that vessel i also love this idea of you know all of these these wrecks from from a similar period um just sort of lying around in the landscape and if you you know if you answer the question why does underwater cultural heritage matter if you just imagined if i, I don't know in the deserts of north africa if all of rommel's tanks were still there how important that would be or on the beaches of normandy and in some places underwater it's just lying there waiting to be discovered waiting to be seen and that's why i think you're doing such a wonderful job um what why if you could sum it up why do you think underwater cultural heritage matters well, it matters on various levels, and I'll give you a, a very current and very real example. In May 2019, uh, my team were involved in the discovery of HMS Edge, a British submarine from the uh, 10th Flotilla. The 10th Flotilla was uh, asked to leave Malta because it was deemed too dangerous and to go to Alexandria, and the HMS Edge never made it. Um, she was presumed lost in action, which she was. Now, some years ago, I was contacted by the, grand, the grandson of Commander Tomkinson, um, who was lost with all hands on deck. There were um, 28 crew and 10, 10 guests, including a very well-known journalist. To cut a long story short, uh, we... we, we deployed our sonar and after a number of days discovered her lying off the seabed in uh, of Malta. So, so like the Olympus, she struck a mine, uh, sunk to the seabed, uh, never to be never to be seen again until until May 2009. We've remained in um, the, the grandson of Commander Tomkinson. His mother is still alive. So the daughter of the commander, who was just a few months old, okay, when her father went down with the mother's love letters on board, 
um, some keepsakes and so on is actually still alive. And one of the first things that the grandson did was he went back to his mother to show her images um, of her father's of her father's wreck. Now, like Commander Tompkinson, as I said, there were thirty-seven others. So over the, over the years, the thirty-seven you know multiplies uh, into quite a large number of relatives and so. On. And it is absolutely incredible the importance uh, with which these relatives um, deem this discovery and. We hope that they will come to Malta in April, COVID, COVID permitting, in April 2022, Sam, which is the 80th anniversary of the urges sinking. And we plan some big dives in order to place a, commem a commemorative plaque and the family will be unveiling a memorial to these 38 um, persons at Fort St. Elmo. Now, I know it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but if that's doesn't show the importance of underwater cultural heritage, then I don't know. I mean, I can talk about ancient trade and what, you know, what, what shipwrecks have taught us about that. But when, 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 when you actually have such a tangible human story, I think it makes it all worthwhile. Right. A, a wonderful answer. Wonderful answer. Um, so where are we with the virtual museum? I mean, are there more wrecks going to be posted up there as you go along? At the moment, there are 14 sites, just like a, just like a, I, I was about to say, just like a real museum. This is a real museum. It's just <laughs> yeah, placed it in a absolutely. virtual world because you can't pick up the shipwrecks and place them in a building. You wouldn't want to do that anyway. Um, so just like any other museum, the collection is not a dead and static collection. We have 14 sites um, currently online. We're uh, planning, we're actually... It, as, as we speak, my team are, are working on putting another three sites online. That will take it up to 17. Within the next two, three years, depending on, on, on the funding levels that we uh, were able to maintain, we have at least up to 40 sites. And that is excluding anything, that, anything else that we discover in the coming years because we're deploying our sonar every year for, 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 for a number of weeks. So up to 40 sites... This is this is important because it will keep our clients, so to speak. They're not because the, the museum is free, but it will keep our you know our visitors coming back to the site uh, because there's always always going to be something something new. Yeah, it's brilliant. It, it, it's really fantastic. It's one of the best examples of using modern technology to bring the maritime past closer to as many people as possible that I've ever ever come across. And I heartily congratulate you. Thank you very much, Sam. Um, everyone who's listening, please, please go, go, go and check out. And tell me, what's the address? It's a virtual museum. It's underwatermalta.org. Very simple. Underwatermalta.org. Well, I'm, I'm sure we're going to be coming back because you've, you've teased me about multi, Malta's um, ship graffiti. And I'm, I'm determined to come out there with a, with a video camera and get some of it. So um, uh, I'll, I'll be back, back to speak to you again soon, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Do please follow us wherever you engage on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram or YouTube. In particular, do check out what we've got on YouTube. I'll make sure that there's footage from the Underwater Museum there for you to check out. Uh, for those of you listening on an iPhone, please make sure you take a few moments to rate and review the podcast on iTunes. 
Best of all, please join the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk. It really doesn't cost very much, but it does a huge amount of good. It supports this podcast. You get four printed journals a year. You can sign up to come to our annual dinner on board HMS Victory. Uh, It supports all of the worthwhile goodness that the Society does to publish the world's most important maritime history and to preserve our maritime past.